personally, that was a really incredibly pivotal learning experience in many, many ways. But you know, it really changed me, really changed the way I feel about diversity, but also about creating a level playing field. And it's stayed with me in all of my roles since. And it's one of the reasons why United, you know, is not difficult because a lot of people in the company share the same view, but it's, a, it's an area where I have a personal, a lot of personal uh, passion and energy. Presenting Danforth Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are pleased to be joined by United Health Group CEO, Andrew Whitty. Andrew and Dr. Montgomery Rice will have a wide ranging conversations on the lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, health equity, and creating a more diverse healthcare workforce. We have a live audience today comprised of our faculty, staff, and students to hear this important discussion. Now for this month's episode, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to Danforth Dialogue. As you know, each month we will bring you leadership insights from a wide range of guests. And today, I am delighted to be joined by United Health Group CEO, Andrew Whitty. Andrew has had a distinguished career in healthcare, including serving as the CEO of Glassell Smith Klein. And in a career that has been a bit unique for business executive, but not for him, as you'll see today, he spent some time in academia as the chancellor of the University of Nottingham. Andrew, welcome to Danforth Dialogue. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So the impetus of our podcast was to look at lessons learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know you have a lot to teach us today. Uh, I know that you took a leave of absence as the CEO, as the CEO of one of our uh, group, Optum, to serve as a special envoy to the World Health Organization and to co-lead its efforts to ensure equitable access to the COVID-19 vaccines, therapies, and, uh, and diagnostics. Can you tell us what happened during that sabbatical and what made you make that decision? Yeah, of course. Well, listen, first, first off, Valerie, let me say very uh, sincere thank you for this invitation. Really kind of you to host me here. And it's super special to be in such a historic venue as the Danforth Chapel and, and uh, really nice to be here. So thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, listen, during the COVID crisis, um, I was asked by uh, the, uh, the leader, Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, to join with him and also Dr. Ngozi, who was formerly the finance minister of Nigeria, to act as two special envoys to help bring together really a global uh, solidarity around how we would develop and then ultimately distribute vaccines and treatments uh, as they were developed in response to COVID. And so we formed, actually, I think, I think actually, even the Paris Climate Accord had fewer countries in it than the COVID effort. It was literally every country in the world mm -hmm. came together. And uh, I can tell you, uh, it was an unusual period where I was managing Zoom calls with 150 countries, mm -hmm. uh, governments uh, on Zoom. Um, that, that was a remarkable effort, I think, to try and get ahead of the obvious challenges of if we were lucky enough to develop new treatments and vaccines, how would we make sure that not just the rich countries got access to that quickly. And we created things like uh, the COVAX uh, mm -hmm. facility, which became a very significant negotiating platform mm -hmm. to ensure that vaccines were acquired on behalf of the developing world. 
long story short, uh, not everything was perfect, of course. Uh, the good news is a vaccine was discovered very much more quickly than anybody expected, highly effective. And the even better news is that within uh, really something like 60 or 90 days, vaccines were being delivered into the poorest countries in the world as well as the richest, unparalleled. That's never happened before in history. And while we would have loved to have got more vaccines more quickly to those poorer mm -hmm. countries, I think as of today, more than a billion, a billion doses have already been right, distributed. Right. Mm -hmm. And in reality, the challenge isn't so much the availability of the vaccine, it's the ability of the health system to distribute, distribute within the countries, yeah. which of course is a long-standing issue. So one of the, I did that because I felt um, from my background of being in industry and having also worked alongside government, I could bring something in trying to bring people together at a time where we needed to have collaboration on a scale we'd never seen before. And, and it, was a, it was a very special privilege to be able to work within that community during such a challenging period. So, so you're on a Zoom call and you got 150 countries there. Uh, some of them are more economically mm -hmm. uh, able than others. What do you think was the light bulb moment that really made people realize that we were going to have to uh, take care of each other during this pandemic, and that meant uh, providing for those countries that were less endowed? That's a very good question. I'd say a couple of things. First off, the coalition involved all of the countries and all of the major health uh, research organizations and the major NGO organizations. So for example, the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome, Found uh, Wellcome Trust, um, find, uh, Gavi, all of these organizations. And I think that brought immediately a tremendous amount of perspective around how to deliver impact globally in, right into the middle of the COVID discussion. So all the right people around the table from the very, very beginning. Mm -hmm. WHO deserve a lot of credit right, for facilitating right, right. that. Um, first thing I would say. Second thing I would say, at the beginning, everybody was frightened. Mm -hmm. Even the rich were frightened. Mm -hmm. Even the rich were, nobody knew if there was going to be a vaccine or not. And at that point, everybody, everybody was kind of equally motivated to work together mm -hmm. uh, to try and make progress. And I think that was a tremendous mobilizing phenomena from a, so things like warp speed, uh, the, the prime research programs all were born from that sense of we had to work together, we mm -hmm. had to pool our efforts. And of course, the same applied to things like economic models of right. how do you raise money to make sure that the poorest countries can actually contribute. And the ACT A program, which was one of the vehicles within the, the portfolio that, that we were working on, within a few months raised something like $24 billion to right. support this effort. Again, unparalleled scale. Uh, but I think it all came from this, this sense of, of shared anxiety which existed for that six or nine months before the vaccine was developed, which really brought many, many decision makers to the room where they kind of hung their badges up at the wall mm -hmm. and we were all in it together. And, and something and that, that we didn't difference. see with Ebola and other Correct. pandemics. Like Correct, it, right? because the, I think those previous pandemics have either been positioned as, well, it's flu and it's technically going to be, we know we can resolve it, mm -hmm. or it's been Ebola and, and the like, where people have said, well, it's going to stay geographically right, long. Right, It's not going to come over. It's, it's not, not going to cross over. the this border. This was the first time where people were afraid that the technology might not be there quickly enough, and, they were, and it was obvious that it was global. So at Morehouse School of Medicine, we got very much involved trying to reduce the hesitancy in many of the communities of color 
we definitely joined uh, many of the NIH coalitions where we could help with some of the design for the vaccine trials. We had blackdoctor.org and others who had many forums to, uh, in the evenings, tons of them, to talk to the community mm -hmm. about vaccines. Of course, we had to deal with all the Henrietta Lacks story, Tuskegee story. Did you see that type of vaccine hesitancy in these other less endowed countries and who have a lot of people of color? Did you sense that also, or was that not as prevalent as what we saw here? No, no, we saw it across the world. There, there were slightly different versions of it in different countries. So even in, you know, in, just as in the US, in some of the richest countries in the world, there was definitely a vaccine hesitancy agenda uh, uh, you know, for, a, for a minority of the population. I think in more of the um, less developed countries in the world, that was, the, there was definitely hesitancy there. There was an anxiety in some countries around um, not, um, not 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 enough time and effort spent making sure people understood what the origin of the vaccines were. There's mm -hmm. been historic events where people have felt concerned about clinical research standards, those sorts of things. And so uh, really making sure that there was sufficient education and outreach. And I'd say that was a learning. So if you look back and say mm -hmm. what could have been done better, I think that that whole side of community outreach mm -hmm. could have been done much better. Now, again, in the middle of a crisis and a right. pandemic where people are trying to socially distance, it's not super easy to do those things. Uh, what I would say is it speaks to the homework we should be doing between pandemics or between epidemics, right? So for me, there's a long list of lessons learned from this particular situation. The real lesson is doing peacetime the things that are hard to do in the war. Right, in the right. middle of the war, it's really hard to do this kind of thing. But we could be doing a better job of it in the peacetime so that when, when future situations come along, communities have felt more engaged, there's been more listening, there's more empathy in the way in which, which uh, science speaks to community. Right, right. Um, and that, that, I think, is something we need to do a much better job. So, so let's talk about that a little bit more. So uh, I had the privilege of attending the Grand Challenge over in Brussels. and. Um, the Gates Foundation led a uh, panel discussion that had many of the African leaders and leaders from some of the low-income uh, low countries, and <clears throat> they had WHO representatives, et cetera. And they talked about what we should be doing in these times of peace mm -hmm. to prepare for the next pandemic. Mm -hmm. And they actually did scenarios of we were, like we were having the next pandemic, and what we should be doing and what we should have done. So a couple of things that you think that we really should be doing in this time of peace uh, to really prepare for the next pandemic, because we will have another. Oh, for sure. Um, so a couple of things I would pick out as a, as a high priority. We should have had a stand, we should have a stand-in uh, financing facility on behalf of the least developed countries to allow the least developed countries to have negotiating influence in contracts for new technologies like vaccines. Okay. Uh, one of the things that happened in um, the COVID crisis was the first six months was spent trying to build a, revolt, a, a financing platform. It should have already existed. Mm -hmm. That would have created a much more level playing field for the uh, lower income countries compared to the richer countries than in fact was the case. So that would be one, one area. The second, mm -hmm. I think, big area is to really think about how we take out some of the bottlenecks of the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So what, what became very clear is the industrialization of technology is quite challenging 
anyway, and it's particularly challenging when you have a, a series of supply chain bottlenecks mm -hmm. which needed to be flexed. So how do we get, how do we build some redundancy in the system so that we're able and ready to expand much more quickly than we would otherwise have liked to have done? It may not be the case that the next solution is as amenable to scale as the RNA as vaccines. RNA that yeah. was a very lucky break mm -hmm. that we, we struck, and it may not be that way next time. So really thinking that through is super important. And then I think continuing to build health system resiliency. Mm -hmm. And so taking advantage of the peacetime to really make sure we have the right vaccine. So things like Gavi. So the Gavi Global uh, Vaccination Initiative is a fantastically successful platform. It's delivered enormous impact for pediatric vaccine across the world. We should mm -hmm. be really, we should be continuing to amplify that, building the backbone of vaccine availability across all of the countries in the world through which we could then plug in future pandemic situations. Those would be some of the things, but there's, there's a long list of lessons to learn from this. Pandemic. So Andrew, if we wanted to, let's say we, we understand we need to have this distribution uh, platform, we need to have supply chain in place, what about giving those countries, those low-income countries, the opp opportunity to develop their own vaccine, the manufacturing technology and capability? Yeah. So that is an area which is so. So I think the answer to that is yes, yes, but probably. Right. So, mm -hmm. so I think some further uh, creation of manufacturing and research capability, I think, makes a lot of sense. The idea that everybody has their own little vaccine facility capable of going into surge production for a pandemic, I think is highly unlikely to be successful because these are these are all highly complex, mm -hmm. difficult manufacturing processes. And you have to be doing them regularly to be good at right. it. Yeah. So it's yeah. really hard to keep really complex manufacturing good when it's not working. Mm -hmm. and, and making sure that there is enough throughput through these facilities to keep the facilities in good standing to keep the workforces skilled mm -hmm. is quite challenging so i i do think there is a, a strong argument for a an extension of the current manufacturing network There's a lot of work going on in a lot of countries to look at that i think the idea that it becomes completely distributed i'm not so convinced of especially mm -hmm. because i think you can't guarantee that the technology that solves the next problem will be the, the same, same technology. Time. And, you know, if, if you, I mean, I think if, if you'd come into the last pandemic and said how many people would predict that the mRNAs would have been the first and best and only, you know, more or less only solution, um, very few people would have said that day one. Right, right, right. Um, and now maybe it will be always mRNA. I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. And so I think I think keeping open our optionality is important from a technology perspective. That makes it hard to essentially create, you know, the set, replicated technology in every country. You're just not going to have enough throughput to keep it competent. Well, you and I both know that viruses are smart. Absolutely. And so the, just taking care of the spike protein will not be enough. Correct. And so Absolutely. we know that there's going to have to be some other things that come down the pipeline. So uh, I think the audience can see why you were selected by WHO to come and be a part of this, because with your extensive knowledge from the uh, scientific perspective, manufacturing perspective, but also the understanding of how we really relate to the persons that we are trying to mm -hmm. serve, are, is very important. So let me let me switch gears to something that you and I've had a lot of conversations about: how we manage uh, our organizations 
during the pandemic. So can you give the audience a little bit of a flavor for how United Health Group, a very large, over 300,000 uh, employee organization in multiple uh, countries and also in multiple states, how did we manage uh, during uh, the pandemic? How did you manage with your people? Well, I think that I think the people at United um, did, an, like many organizations, did an amazing job of demonstrating tremendous resilience and commitment during the period. And, you know, we, you're right, we had uh, over 300,000 people, probably about 40 or 50 percent of that population already worked from home or had some material element of capacity to work from home. Uh, but within about a week, we were able to take everybody home. And the fact that we could do that, we could equip them, we could make sure they were all online, we, we could make sure in India and the Philippines that they had enough bandwidth um, to be able to uh, connect and communicate, uh, that was a tremendous, that, that showed the strength of our technical organization and huge kudos to our technology uh, uh, people across the company. I actually think the key to all of this, though, isn't necessarily uh, technology or logistics, which, of course, are critical. I think the real key is, do you have a binding mission before the crisis? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, this is about 300,000 people who chose to want to stay super committed and engaged and who were willing to, were willing to re, reframe their entire way of thinking and operating on behalf of the company and not to become distracted and not mm -hmm. to become... Um, uh, unproductive and, and to choose to put our clients, our customers, our patients first. Um, I, and so I think one of the great lessons of this, of any organization, and this is why the health system was so resilient, mm -hmm. because I think people who work in the hospitals, people who work in the clinics, they have this binding mission. And then, when, um, and then when, when trouble really hits, almost that brings out the very best in people and it brings out a kind of cohesiveness within an organization. And, and I think health systems have that. I think clinics have that. We are very fortunate at United to have that. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have it because in addition to being a very substantial insurance company with all of its legacy, we're also a very large health delivery organization. And so we have 70,000 clinicians in the organization. Right, right. And that brings into our organization such a proximity to health and to people and the consequences of delivery or not. And so, so while, while I think we, we did well around logistics, we did well around technology, we did well around communication, what we really, really had was that binding mission to start with. Mm -hmm. That's what kept us in good shape, and it allowed us to perform, and it allowed us not to, not to uh, drop the ball during the crisis, and allowed the organization to come through the crisis, I think, actually stronger than we went in. And so, Andrew, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Morehouse School of Medicine, I think, is aligned in the fact that we have a strong mission. And uh, everybody knows our vision statement leading the creation and advancement of health equity, not just because we ask them to memorize it, but because they live it every day. And I think that is why we were able to come back uh, in a hybrid mode, but start testing people early on and really getting people back into uh, the workforce. But we've had some resistance. Uh, and I know uh, all of us have been challenged with that. How have you as an organization and as a leader addressed people's concerns when they said, okay, you know, I actually like this working from home. 
And I think that's what I want to do. Well, you know, again, you know, for some of our, for many of our employees, it's not a choice. I mean, if you're a physician in a clinic, right. you have to show up and, uh, and you have to show up through the dark days of the crisis. And we owe a lot to not clinicians right. who mm-hmm. did that kind of thing and pharmacists and physicians. For those who are more office based, and of course we have a lot of those, we're like you, we, we have a lot of people who are choosing to stay at home. We've, we've lent into that, we've recast roles uh, to be now, okay, you want to be at home, we agree the job could be a home-based job, you're now a home-based worker or you're a hybrid worker. And we've recast all of those roles into a much, so, so people don't have to work around the rules. We've just recast the rules to say, yes, we agree, you're a home worker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think not everybody in my leadership team shares what I'm about <laughs> to say, but overall, honestly, Valerie, I'm intensely relaxed about where people work, mm-hmm. as long as they work. As long as and, they work. And so <laughs> it's our job to make sure that we get them connected, and it's our job to try and help them be productive. But, but, I, but I think we have two things I would say. One is I think we've discovered something which we always knew, but we didn't really acknowledge enough. Work-life balance is important, Mm -hmm. and what goes on outside of work is stressful and is distracting. And if you can help, if if you can accommodate people to be able to manage the out-of-work world just Mm -hmm. a little bit better, Mm -hmm. you will actually get much more from them in work. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that really came to light. And that could be, I really want to be at home more because it allows me to look after my kids better. It might be somebody saying, I want to be at home less because I have a relationship at home I don't want to be close to. Mm-hmm. And so finding ways to be empathetic <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, and accommodating around that, I think produces a more rounded experience for the individual. And I think we win from that. The other lesson I think we have to be super, resili- uh, super focused on is it's all very well for me, a 58-year-old guy who's spent, you know, I've learned all sorts of habits, good and bad in business. And whether I work from home or work in an office or work on a plane, I've got my habits. Mm -hmm. People we need to really be thoughtful about in this are the 21, 22, 23, 25 year olds who just come into work for the first time. They don't have any habits. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think we should go back to the 1950s way of working just to give them habits. But we've got to figure out ways to create some kind of cadence where people are able to learn. Mm-hmm. habits and ways of working which are which are appropriate I, I'm firmly of the view work environment of the 2020s 2030s should look different to mm-hmm. the last 20 years mm-hmm. what I haven't quite settled on is how we make sure new joiners to the workforce get the best chance mm-hmm. to get into a groove whatever that groove is we need to get them into it so that they feel like they understand the rules of the road and the way it works All right so, Andrew, when I look at uh, your e- United Health Group's ESG report or look at any of your annual reports, I see a strong emphasis on diversity in the workplace, uh, in the workforce. So, tell us about what United Health Group is doing there and, and why are you committed to increasing the opportunities for many more people from diverse backgrounds? Absolutely. Well, it starts, it starts in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, it, it, I think it's something which very broadly the organization strongly believes in, in terms of wanting to see a much more diverse, from, and in every definition of the word diverse, right. racial, uh, you know, geography, background, religion, sexuality, uh, whatever background, because it brings 
it, it brings tremendous richness mm -hmm. to the insights and the ways of work. And I think actually it's really hard for an organization to be empathetic in its community if it doesn't reflect its community. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be empathetic if you have very little in common with the person you're trying to be empathetic with. Mm -hmm. And so the organization has to try and create that, um, that piece. Within the organization, we're, we're in, a, uh, I think, a decent, we have a decent degree of diversity. We've set ourselves some significant uh, aspirational goals in terms of trying to make sure that 50% um, of our leadership are female. Right now, it's about 40%. Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, about, a third, uh, about a third of our leadership are people of color. Mm -hmm. um, we're making good progress on those mm -hmm. things, but by setting some aspirational goals, it really starts to mobilize the organization around, well, what can we do? How can we help? How can mm -hmm. we lean into this? We're seeing great efforts. We're seeing tremendous shifts in the way in which we, we where we go to look for candidates and the mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. now, at the same time, as we try and move forward internally, we also know we can help externally. Mm -hmm. So just last year, we announced our foundation, announced a $100 million investment in diverse healthcare workforce right. development. Mm -hmm. And we're working with a number of schools across the US to try and ensure we can accelerate training of diverse healthcare workers. And we'll continue to do that. Mm -hmm. um, those, are, those are just a couple of areas that we're focused on, but it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's an important, it really, I think for everybody at United, it's, a, it's an important mission for me personally. Um, one of my very first leadership jobs was being sent as a 29 year old to go lead a uh, a company in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I showed up looking like the intern. I mm -hmm. was actually the CEO of the company. Mm -hmm. um, Ninety. Was this in South Africa? In South Africa, yeah, ninety-five yeah. percent of the people who were in my organisation were not white. Mm -hmm. um, and I took over that th business uh, about four weeks before Nelson Mandela's first election. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know that was for me personally. Personally, that was a really. Uh, incredibly pivotal learning experience in many, many ways, but you know, it really changed me, really changed the way I feel um, about, uh, about diversity, but also about creating a level playing field, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, about taking the time to try and understand why people talk past each other, mm -hmm. why do people talk at each other but don't listen, mm -hmm. and make assumptions without taking the time to understand. Um, and I saw, I saw, I learned, I lived a lot of that, um, and it's stayed with me in all of my roles since. And, and it's one of the reasons why at United, you know, it's not difficult because a lot of people in the company share the same view, but it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an area where I have a personal, a lot of personal uh, passion and energy for. Well, good. So, you know, Andrew, in the middle of all of this in 2020, we started to hear companies being held responsible for ESG. Maybe you can explain what, what ESG is to an audience of people who've never heard that. Uh, and then talk about how United Health Group is advancing uh, its ESG strategy and why it's important. Yeah, so yeah, environmental, societal, and governance measures kind of uh, augment the classic financial measures of a financial or of a, of a business organization. And it, it kind of tries to. The argument, and very much something that's come from Europe, really, actually, in terms of its origins, the argument is to extend the spectrum of stakeholders that companies and boards feel mm -hmm. account to, mm -hmm. and uh, and that that's very much uh, the direction of travel. Uh, for us at United, we're focused in uh, areas that we believe are very central to our our core uh, mission, 
to help others uh, to work with and help people improve the health system for everybody. We, we focus on those. We're, so we, we, we're very disciplined about not drifting into areas which are not directly related to our organization. What does that mean? It means things like um, how can we make sure that our business model is as least impacting on the uh, climate as possible? How can we have the best water uh, systems? How can we use the least energy? How can we get green? How can we go carbon neutral? All of those things. How do we eliminate paper? I mean, anybody who's in healthcare, you know how much paper is in healthcare? <laughs> in the last 12 months, uh, through we, we're on a march to zero paper. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a long march, mm -hmm. but it, we are on a march to zero paper. Um, I think in the last 12 months, we, have, we, we alone have eliminated 1 billion pages of documentation that goes to patients in America. Oh my goodness. And we okay. have billions to go. Mm -hmm. And you know, we are working with regulators, we're working with everybody to find ways to do it. You know what's so interesting about that micro example? We're helping, we're helping the environment, um, we're eliminating waste, and by really thinking hard about how to take paper out, we're developing communications to patients which are much better. Right. So right, not right. only is there less paper, but patients are telling us, thank you, at last, I understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that is really a great example for me of where ESG comes to life. It's where you're, you're taking your business model and you're not, you're not taking a sharp left because somebody told you to worry about something. You're saying, look, in addition to all the things we do, let's take into consideration how do we create a more sustainable workforce? How do mm -hmm. we create a more diverse workforce? How do we create um, a more environmentally friendly product? How do we do all of those things and be more economically successful? It's, right, it's right. Not, it doesn't have to be an or or a conflict with economic progress. Mm -hmm. We need to simply start to evolve our business model to be thoughtful about these other dimensions. And that, that's why I like this approach that we have of staying very tightly focused to our mission. Don't get drifted off into areas you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> focus about things that you do know. And focus not, don't focus in this as a virtue signaling or philanthropic venture. Focus on it as a way to modernize and innovate your business model mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that it's truly sustainable mm -hmm. and therefore uh, does meet the goal, which I think the average person would say is a good goal, which is, yes, we want you to be economically successful, but we want you to be a fair company. Mm -hmm. And if we had our choices, we'd rather you didn't destroy the, economy, uh, the environment. Right, why are you doing I mean, it? You know, and I think, though, although this debate can get very agitated sometimes, if you just step back and ask those very simple questions, I think most people would say, yeah, I think if you can do that, that's good. Okay. So we're going to shift and talk about some leadership now okay. you've been demonstrating how you lead but tell us what you found in your role as the CEO now of two companies is the key to leadership success that's a very well first off I think when you're still in a leadership position you can never declare success so <laughs> it's uh, you, you have to continually be improving yourself and all around you to try and move forward because our, our environment is be, it, is so dynamic mm -hmm. and it's so challenging and it and it's so different to what we grew up in you know whether whether it's the advent of social media the pace of news just the scale and complexity of what we do i mean mm -hmm. it, you know so so i'd say there's constantly a challenge to improve i think for me uh, some very simple uh, 
there's some very simple lessons or rules that I think, I think though do apply. One mm -hmm. is, can you build a cohesive mission for people to really align behind? Right, right. Number two, are you willing to surround yourself and, and build leadership teams of people who uh, don't necessarily agree with you or think like you? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is a, the, the reason I say that isn't to be controversial, but I think mm -hmm. it's a way to extend bandwidth. Mm -hmm. if, if, you, if you surround yourself with clones, you have the illusion of capacity, but you are not really creating bandwidth. You're simply creating a duplication of what you already know. Mm -hmm. How do you create bandwidth at the top of an organization or in any organization? Super important. How do you communicate? How do you deliver energy into the organization? I often think that when you hire somebody, one of the key hiring criteria it, for me is, are they an energy emitter or an energy sink? Mm. <laughs> and if you're sucking energy out of a system, that that is a downer, right? right <laughs> and right, and right, that right. isn't going to play out well. Mm -hmm. We're in the business of motivating people. We need large numbers of people to feel good and positive about what they do. That's an energy emitter challenge. So mm -hmm. as a personal perspective, I look for that. And then I'd say absolutely pivotally, I need you need leadership in a company or in any organization who realize that actually, actually, when it comes down to it, the leaders aren't the most important people in the organization. There you go. There and you go. I often, I know this sounds slightly, um, I guess, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is you're going to miss the people who clean the building before you miss the people on the top floor. Yeah, no, no and, doubt about and it. You, it <laughs> no is, doubt about uh, it. And organizations that forget that mm -hmm. make a huge mistake. Making sure that we are, and the other thing I would say, is the people at the front line of organizations are technically more competent than the people at the top of organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because they are, people at the top, maybe once, maybe once they were doing that job. Mm -hmm. But it was a long time ago, that job has changed, and now you're at the top of the organization, you're kind of looking in 20 different places. You're like a, you, you, you're kind of like a generalist. And yeah. you're a little bit out of date on the detail. The people at the front line are not generalists. They're deep specialists and they're completely contemporary. They're doing that job right now. Mm -hmm. and, and organizations that don't listen to those people mm -hmm. are in big trouble. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I always have this sort of idea in my mind. And you know, I'm not a super fan of military analogies, but I think it does work in this particular context. The infantry know how the battles go in long before the generals. Yeah, yeah, right. Listen to your listen, infantry. Listen, listen. And that is a really, for me, having that orientation is a key aspect of how large organizations need to operate. Right. I mean, I think some very key lessons, and I was going to ask you uh, a question about what would you tell young people who are starting out in their careers, but you sort of address some of it, bringing energy to the space, right? being authentic, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and understanding that the role that you are playing is very significant and become an expert, Absolutely. an expert in your role because you are right. Once you start to sit in the CEO suite, sometimes you ask yourself, am I really good at anything anymore? And uh, sometimes the answer is no, yep. you actually are not. And so Absolutely. you have to uh, sort of refresh. Um, so you know, uh, Andrew, at Morehouse School of Medicine, our vision statement is leading the creation and advancement of health equity. So give me, in closing, what your hope is for how we may 
ever achieve in this country, health equity, or in the world, health equity? What gives you hope? Uh, get well. So it's a, it, first of all, it's a critical mission. Like many people, I was lucky to be born where I was born in the year I was born. Mm -hmm. I could have been born 300 years earlier and be dead already because the average longevity would have been 40, not, not 80. Or I could have been born in a previous era and enlisted into some horrendous global war. But I wasn't. I was born in an era where none of those things happened. Um, and I was born in an era uh, where I had access to a lot of um, capabilities of the world. But it's just by luck. Mm -hmm. It's just by luck where you're born and when you're born. And I think we all have to take ownership of helping the people who weren't lucky. Right. And um, most impactful example of this I ever saw was in a refugee camp on the border of Somalia, mm -hmm. uh, which is the only place I've been in most places of the world. It's the only place I've ever been where I don't think humans should live. Mm -hmm. It's the most hostile environment. Uh, but people go there because it's better than where they were. Right. Mm -hmm. They're escaping something mm -hmm. and they end up in somewhere awful. And I remember spending time with a, a, a young mother who'd had uh, four children, three of whom were buried outside of her hut, and the one surviving child was still with her. And she had, in her hut, she had no man-made anything. Mm. She didn't have anything. She lived with branches. She, had, she, she slept on really nothing more than a, a bed made of twigs. Mm -hmm. But, but she, she swept that hut Every to keep day. it tidy. Mm -hmm. And that could have been me, but it wasn't. It's our job to help people like that. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to find ways, whether it's in the camps of Somalia or on the border of Somalia, or whether it's in downtown Atlanta, mm -hmm. it's our jobs to find those situations and resolve it. So, and I think more and more, I genuinely believe more and more people see that. Right. I think generations before us didn't have to see it. Mm -hmm. But now you can't miss it. Can't miss you it. You can't miss it. It's in our face. You can't ignore it. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that calls us to do something about it. Uh, what we're doing at United is relentlessly looking for ways in which we can try and address it. I'll give you one example, which I, I think is ties back to this notion of sustainable effort to improve. Mm -hmm. We run a program called House Calls, 2.1 million house calls a year where clinicians visit to seniors' homes to help understand the, the patient's uh, or, the, or the senior's health status. It's super interesting what you learn about somebody at home versus in a doctor's office. That's right. You find out what's in their fridge. You find <coughs> out, you know, really, really are they stressed and depressed. Out of the 2.1 million house calls in 2021, about 300,000 referrals were made for health equity. Mm -hmm. 300,000 opportunities were found because we found people who, for whatever reason, were being excluded from transportation needs, mm -hmm. who, who should be getting um, income enhancement, but for whatever reason, hadn't claimed it. Things like that, mm -hmm. which are clear social determinants, right? Right, clear. And, and leaning in to fight, to go look, find them in their homes and help advocate for them 300,000 times. Now, that's just, that's just one example mm -hmm. of what we can do. Um, and that's where we 
I think there are huge numbers of people inside United Healthcare who feel like I do, that we are very fortunate. We're very lucky to have been born when and how and where we were, but it's our job to help the people who weren't so lucky. Yeah. And we can do that and still be a successful business. I come back to that point I made earlier, finding ways to make these interventions sustainable, not bolt on, is critical. And we, we are smart enough to do that. We, are. we don't have to choose to leave people behind. Just as you've seen in things like the HIV pandemic, you saw in the COVID pandemic, the sentiment, the mission was nobody gets left behind. Same should be true in health equity. Yes. Why do we choose to leave people <coughs> behind? We don't have to. Right. So on that positive note, thank you. On behalf of Morehouse School of Medicine, Sir Witty, <laughs> thank you for joining us today for the Danforth Dialogue. We are honored to have you. In closing, here are three thoughts. We've said many times, great leaders step up. Our guest today is a living testimony. When COVID hit, Sir Andrew Whitty did not hesitate. He stepped up. It wasn't like he didn't have a lot on his plate already. He could have said he was too busy to get involved, but great leaders are never too busy to be involved when all is on the line. Second, Great leaders learn. There have been many times in my life, and I'm sure Andrew would say the same, that you had to step up only to get smacked down. Those are the best times to learn from those experiences. So while sometimes we may on occasion fail, we know we cannot allow today's defeat to turn into anything less than tomorrow's victory. We have to gather the knowledge from many of the setbacks to address our future challenges. And finally, great leaders apply it forward for the good of all. And I think what you heard today is that we have to pay it forward. It's not just about looking at what's happened for us from our good fortune in the past. We have to take that and pay it forward. And pay it forward such that it removes the barriers that are there, not just for ourselves, but for others. We have to share our knowledge, share our assets, and share our reasons for our success with others, thereby inspiring them to believe in what's possible. So with that, we end today's Danforth Dialogues. Thanks to everyone for tuning in and always wish you good health and great success in all you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.